0: Yes, it is true. We do live on science alone. You are listening to the unnamed science show on 2SER here in Sydney and around Australia, thanks to the Community Broadcasting Network. We used to have a name, but we got told not to use it anymore. So we're on the search for a new one. But that doesn't mean we don't have good stuff to talk about. So if you stick around for the next half an hour, you're going to hear all sorts of stuff about what happened in science in 2005 and what's happening right now in the world of science. We're in summer mode, which means we're kicking back with a stubby of beer and a beanbag science mode. We're just going to have a bit of a chat. We being me, I'm Chris Stewart. Across the table from me is my colleague, Jackie Hayes. Say hi, Jackie.
1: G'day, everybody.
0: And, uh, yeah, we're just going to sort of kick things off a little bit here today, I think, with a quick look back at 2005, the year that was. And one of the ways of gauging what happened in 2005, and what was interesting in science in 2005, is by having a look at one of the major scientific journals, and probably the biggest one in you know on the planet, is Nature. Nature. And Nature's online presence is nature.com, and they've put up a list of their top ten stories. In fact, they've put up two lists of top ten stories. One of them is the editor's choice. What were the stories that the editors thought were good, interesting, quirky, or important? And they've also got the reader's choice. What did the readers actually click on? So although we'd start with the editor's choice. In the top five, the triple sunset that could not exist, sounds like something out of Star Wars to me, all of these you can go and check on nature.com, by the way, has bubble burst over exploding toad tail? There was a, an What's area that? in Germany, apparently, where there are lots of toads suddenly blowing up, expanding up and going boom, boom, and everyone's going, what the hell is going on with the toads? But they wondered whether or not It was actually true, or people just telling porkies there. Anti-gravity craft slips past patent offices. Someone managed to get anti-gravity patented, despite the fact that it doesn't exist. Well done. (laughs) Mice gang up on endangered birds. Sounds a bit rough. Mm. Mice just knocking it out of the endangered birds there. And the number one editor's choice on Nature.com. U.S. launches probe into sales of unapproved transgenic corn. That sounds serious and important. It does. If you're selling this stuff and you haven't got approval for it, then naughty <laughs> you. So that was the editor's choice. Jackie, what was, the, uh, what was the reader's choice?
1: Yes, well, I've got the list here for the reader's choice for the top stories of 2005. And in this, we have monkeys paying for sexy pictures.
0: Monkeys paying for sexy pictures. I remember that one well. You had a a bunch of monkeys who um, were were put in a situation where they were shown a bunch of pictures, some of which were rather sexy of female monkeys, and they had to basically say, I'll I'll, I'll hit this button which which gives me food, or I'll hit this button which shows me sexy pictures. And they went for the sexy pictures, not for the food.
1: Again, showing that humans are related to monkeys. (laughs) I know very many men like that. I have. There are others on this list, including fungi destroys mosquitoes.
0: I want to get some of that.
1: Mm. An enthusiast re- used Google to reveal where the Roman some Roman ruins were.
0: Oh yes, that was really really cool. This this, this uh, Google uh, Google Maps thing was it called the Google Earth? Google Earth, right? Yes. Where they got satellite pictures of pretty much the entire planet, and a guy used those to go and find evidence for Roman ruins because it's the sort of thing that's only going to show up on satellite imagery. How
1: cool is that? Yeah. Lucky monkeys can't use it otherwise. Oh, indeed. <laughs> Who knows what they'd look for. Uh, we have East Antarctica putting on weight.
0: Mm, not quite sure, that one. sounds like a global warming story. It does but you sound check like a out?
1: global warming well, Yes. We have April Fool's Apolo- Apollo bacteria spur lunar erosion.
0: Ah, uh, yes. The April Fool's joke over there on NewScientist.com saying that our moon landing was eating, that the bacteria left over was eating away at the moon's surface, wow. which is kind of funny.
1: Okay, we have, of course, the giant squid snapped in the deep.
0: Who doesn't like a story about big undersea animals? Do you remember we, we covered that one on, on, this, on this story? <laughs> and what, what's the story? Basically, this big, stupid squid with, with um, huge, razor-sharp claws or something. It's got tentacles with suction cups on them with claws. And it's this massive squid, and it washed up on the beach, and everyone went, bloody hell even know those existed.
1: What do they use the claws for? I
0: think to grip onto stuff. Like when they like when they go ships. looking. Yeah. Well, I don't know that they actually want to go and eat a ship. But if they um, are going after, say, a whale, then they can grip onto it and rip it apart. I mean, that's scary stuff.
1: Oh, that is scary. Hmm. I'm sure the Japanese will find a way to turn this calamari. They probably will
0: need to, we need to do some research on that. Says the Japanese <laughs> whaling fleet.
1: And then we have dark matter highlighting extra dimensions.
0: Dark matter. They, look, another just, great story is always about weird astronomical stuff that we mm. don't understand, but if we can bring in dark matter and extra dimensions, then that's a killer. That's <laughs> an absolute ripper. There's
1: at least 26 dimensions now, right? Mathematicians it, it, looking for gotta more. There's got
0: to be. Just, you know, need an extra dimension? We've got them over here in okay. Bucket Loads. Yeah, uh, we gotta live
1: on alone.
0: You are listening to A Science Show on Community Radio in Australia thanks to 2SER and the Community Broadcasting Network, and, of course, around the world, thanks to the wonderful uh, technology of podcasting, which was the uh, was it the Oxford Dictionary's Word of the Year. Some major word groups, Word of the Year was podcasting. And so we'd like to say that we were in there right at the beginning of it all. We weren't, but we'd like to say that. Anyway, listen, <laughs> you're listening to a, a, a science radio show, so we'd better do some science. Jackie, you've been looking at some stuff around attractiveness and sexual attraction. What's going on in that world of science?
1: Uh, First of all, let's uh, have a recap on the whole sex in animals thing. Uh, Just for the interest of our viewers, I'm sure everyone's interested in this. Animals that have sex for fun.
0: Now, that's an interesting thing because when you think about it, surely most animals are having sex to procreate. Yes. So do we, but we also have sex for fun. What other animals do this?
1: Humans, obviously. Mm -hmm. Dolphins. Interestingly. Cool. And our closest relatives, the bonobos and the pygmy a, chimpanzees. A bonobos
0: are closest relatives.
1: Oh, well the bonobos and the chimpanzees. Oh yes. okay. Right. So right. they're close groups to us. So that
0: that's kinda cool. So it's the intelligent ones. Like, the everyone intelligent says dolphins ones. are intelligent and this is evidence.
1: And also animals with a strong social structure. Ah. So animals in which pair bonded individuals will do better than individuals by themselves.
0: Right. So mm-hmm. the sex and for fun thing might be sort of feeding in here to say, uh, if we can have fun while we're doing it, we'll bond more, and that helps the social co- cohesion.
1: Yes. I like and it. And in fact, homosexuality also occurs in all of those species. Really?
0: Mm. Mm. Very interesting. Indeed.
1: And there is well, the hero of a story, Professor Elizabeth Lloyd from Indiana University, has looked at the female orgasm, and the reasons for its existence. And there are more than 21 theories about the origin and purpose of the female Hang orgasm. Hang on, more
0: than 21 theories more about female More than 21
1: organism. theories. Blimey. Mm.
0: So what's the, what's the leading contender?
1: Well, we had... The first one to come up was in the mid-60s. Right. And this was the one that the female gets so tired after an orgasm she lies there on her back and doesn't move very much. Right,
0: I've heard that one. So basically so it gives a chance...
1: The sperm doesn't... Slide back out again. Right,
0: right. Which, you know, not wishing to get graphic about this, but it kind of makes sense, right?
1: It does make sense. So what doesn't make sense then is that only 25% of females have reliable orgasms.
0: Right. You'd be thinking that if this was about making sure that the little wigglies get up there, (laughs) then you'd want to make sure that this was something that was easy for the females to do.
1: And in fact, a third of females never have an orgasm. This Mm. is according to several sex surveys done over a 70-year period. So... We're talking reliable surveys Yeah, here.
0: That, and, and if you're out there listening, you know who you are, then our condolences.
1: <laughs> well, so then the other theories would be the, that a hormone is released during orgasm, which is oxytocin. Mm-hmm. And uh, in other animals, this has been implicated in the bonding between two humans. Right, two right. Animals, so we're back to bonding sex. again. Yeah. Yes, but however, that bondage isn't established in humans yet. right. And another big theory is that um, it's evolved as a signalling device for the quality of the male. Oh, mm. I see. So it, it's yes. judgment, basically. basically. So all of those guys yes.
0: out there kind of saying, so did you, you know, that, that they're actually right because it doesn't reflect on them.
1: It does sometimes, perhaps. Jeez. Hmm. So, however, Professor Elizabeth Lloyd has mm-hmm. come up with a new theory. Right. Which she thinks is the only one that stands up to scientific rigorous testing.
0: Okay, so all the other ones were just sort of, hey, maybe it's this, hey, whereas this has been tested. Right. Okay.
1: Right, so 21 theories. Yep. She's come up with the fact that male and female embryos share the same basic body plan during the first two months of their life. Yeah. And during this time, the nerve and tissue pathways for, the, for orgasm get laid down. Right. So basically, males need orgasms in order to pregnant females, and females share the same basic body plan, and therefore, so
0: because them. it's built into males, females have got it anyway. Because we all started off, don't they say we all started off as females anyway? Yes, and then for bloke kind of change later months. on. Right. So it's just you know females are just lucky to have it there to use when they want
1: to. Yes, a bit like the male nipple, which right. has no evolutionary purpose. Right. Right. Okay. Mm. On the other hand, you have people like Jermaine Greer saying mm-hmm. that. You know, when females become more sexually liberated, then everyone will one hundred percent.
0: Thanks, Jermaine, uh, for for weighing in on the <coughs> argument there. So, anything else in the uh, in the sexual and attractiveness side of science today?
1: Well, actually, if you go back to nineteen ninety six, there was an interesting study mm-hmm. about how smells make you make each other attracted. Right, and. Uh, we have an interesting study that was dubbed the Stinky T-Shirt Study.
0: <laughs> I don't like where this is going.
1: <laughs> men, men were asked to wear a T-shirt for two consecutive nights without any deodorant or um, other odours.
0: They had to be asked to do this? Most guys would do that anyway.
1: <laughs> well, I think they had to ask the female students who were asked to rate the odours.
0: Oh, that can't be good.
1: Yes. Uh, and they found, in fact, that women were more likely to choose the odours of men who had something called a different MHC, which is a major histocompatibility complex.
0: Ah, what does that mean in English?
1: Well, it's basically 200 genes mm-hmm. sitting in our DNA that's known to have an immunog- immunological function. So basically... um these proteins sit on the edge of your cell, cell, and as your T-cells come along, which are the cells responsible for killing foreign matter, they um, identify these MHC genes and recognize it to be your cells. So they found that uh, men that have a similar MHC to the females were actually less attractive, and this comes through in your odour.
0: Ah, okay, so... You're less attractive because the female's basically saying, Hang on, you're too closely related yes. to me and I don't want to mate with you because that creates two headed kids and
1: well, you know, all the problems that we've got with in royalty the less and immunological right, 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 right. In interestingly breeding. enough, mm-hmm. the oral contraceptive pill mm-hmm. changes your ah.
0: preferences. So is the oral contraceptive pill getting in the way of this natural mechanism to stop people who are too close together breeding?
1: Quite possibly. So it makes you choose people who are more similar to you. So like an uncle or brother or father figure sort of thing. So that you'll stick around and look after the child.
0: Yeah. Hmm. Mm. Hmm. Not quite sure where that is going. We'd better take a break. We'll be back with more science in a second. Yes, indeed. This is the unnamed science show on community radio across Australia and around the world. So, hello to you wherever you are listening to us with the latest in interesting science, strange science, quirky science, important science from the uh, from around the globe. Today, we're in summer mode, which means we're kicking back with a bit of uh, a bit of nostalgia from two thousand and five, and also what's interesting, what's happening right now. I'm uh, in the studio here with Jackie Hayes. I'm Chris Stewart. And uh, I thought we'd sort of kick along a little bit with um, with a bit more of what's in the news of science right now. Something that you mentioned a, a little while ago, Jackie, was about um, the, the, the sniffing of smelly armpits, you know, the experiment where the guys had to wear the T-shirts. Uh, the t-shirts and girls bed. had, and to, girls smell had to smell them. Is this anything like the stuff that you can get in pubs I'm sure you've seen it, where you put the, the dollar coin in the slot and you get this little sachet of wipe-on wipe on sex sexual appeal. attraction. Like, yes. I mean, first of all, just the very word wipe-on, you know, that's <laughs> that's not attractive. Is, is there any reality in this that you know of? You've I, seen the stuff, right?
1: Well, I've tried the stuff. Oh, yeah? In fact, What's it like? Yes. It smells horrendous. and I You would surprise not, me. <laughs> I wouldn't be attracted to anyone who wore it. However, possibly my MHC is too similar to the person who donated their smell. Well,
0: that's possible. Mm. And that really ugly guy who tried to crack onto you in the pub wearing this stuff, it's it's got nothing to do with the fact that he's got, you know, two noses and a really big (coughs) hairstyle. (laughs) Dear, oh dear. It is
1: very interesting, though, because humans are considered to be quite optical mm, uh, mm, creatures. mm. But the fact that we can, like, test our genetic similarity with mates through our Noses is quite a...
0: It is quite amazing. I mean, there are many species that really do communicate sexually through pheromones. And I believe studies have been done that show that we have a residual uh, effect on us from that. That, you know, there is a very small thing. But it's so low down there on the scale of what we use to, to pick a mate that it's just virtually non-existent. Um,
1: it makes you wonder whether or not uh, corporations can take advantage of this?
0: Well, it does, it does a little bit. And nice segue there because the the next story that I that I've pulled off the wire today is not about sexual attractiveness, although some people would probably put their attractiveness to a, a particular product up there with their attractiveness to, you know their, their partner. Some people are so into their favorite brands. That uh, really? that it's right up there. Oh yeah, I mean, if you think about, you know, some people are, are really, really into. Well, one of the, the best examples of Nike, perhaps. Apple computers, renowned ah. for having people who are just ridiculously into Apple computers above anything else, so that they can do no wrong. There's been a study that's that's shown that there may actually be some hardwiring in the brain that's responsible for this. Um, there was some some work done at Caltech in Pasadena in the U.S. which show that there's a pavlovian response in people when they see their favored brands and they've actually found the parts of the brain that are responsible for this they're called the ventral striatum and the ventral midbrain and what they found oh, yes. is that that section that section they found that when you have a good experience with a brand a product something that you recognize so for example you buy a drink and you enjoy that drink then some serious hard wiring of a Pavlovian type, you know, the dog's drooling when the bell's ringed, um, goes on in these parts of the brain. So that next time you see that thing, that part of the brain kicks in and above everything else sends through a signal that says, you like this, go for it.
1: Of course, uh, people in marketing have known that for quite a while. Well, they've
0: known it. They haven't been able to know what part of the brain it was, but they Uh. didn't care. But it's interesting to note that that these guys have actually found this part part of the brain brain. and they've been able to actually see it using magnetic uh, resonance imaging, the MRI machine, and be able to see the strength of the response is related to how much you liked that thing in the past.
1: It makes me wonder whether or not we can use that information that's just been discovered to treat disorders such as obesity, because apparently a lot of obese people have... um, A Pavlovian response Mm. to their favourite restaurant, such as McDonald's, right? Because the marketing of McDonald's is cradle to grave marketing, Mm -hmm. which is get them early when they're young, create you know an atmosphere they enjoy coming back to,
0: and put them into their grave earlier.
1: Yes. (laughs) Well, I wasn't going there, but (laughs) yes. So maybe this will you know. So maybe we could
0: maybe we could reverse it by helping people through some kind of therapy to create a Pavlovian response against the thing that's hurting them. Interesting idea. Something else that people can get very devoted to is sport. Again, Uh, nice little segue here. And here's just a real quick one. Um, If you were to name what do you think is the the best sport and pick, you know, if you were to pick 10 people off the street and say, what's the best sport in the world? You'd get just fanatical responses. Soccer is one of the ones that's really taking off. Football European football the one that and actually Australia has the and Australia just ball.
1: made the world cup and Australia yes. made the world
0: cup and so suddenly football's sexy in in, uh, in Australia
1: yes
0: however a bunch of researchers at Los Alamos natu- uh, National Laboratory in New Mexico have come up with a way of trying to figure out which sport is the most exciting and therefore the best and they reckon that it's soccer, soccer. the reason that they've done this is because they've done a measure of in which sports does the underdog win the most often. Because if you think about it, if you want an exciting game, you want it to be unpredictable. So you don't want the guys who are on top to always win. And apparently the game in which the underdog wins the most often is soccer, followed by... And they they were looking mainly at American sports, and so cricket isn't in there. Um, Neither was rugby, because they're not big sports in the US. But soccer more than baseball more than uh, American football, you know, gridiron, more than basketball, is the one where there's an upset on the day. But they have also found that in the last 10 years or so, English football, English soccer, the English leagues, have become more predictable. So in the last 10 years or so, baseball has actually become more interesting than English football on this measure.
1: But I suppose this is um, just during the whole season and not during a single game.
0: No, this is across the whole season. Uh, so there you go. There's a, there's a bit of a uh, bit of scientific evidence for those of you out there who are doing fisticuffs over. No, my sport's better than your sport. As long as you're American, and as long as you're looking at the last ten years, it's baseball. Otherwise, it's European football. The best game in the world. Food for thought there. Yeah, You're listening to the Science Show. Not the Science Show. That's the ABC. Goodness, we're in trouble with them now. We used to have a name. We can't use it anymore. So bear with us until we come up with a better one. I'm Chris. Jackie's over the table from me. And we're bringing you the best in science from around the world this week. All the way through the show, we've been trying to come up with segues between the different stories. I think we're down to the point where there aren't any segues left anymore. So... What else stands out as interesting? I think you've got something about elephants. Jackie, what's I going did, on?
1: I did. Apparently, finding out about the chemicals in elephant tail hair can reduce the number of human-elephant conflicts. There was okay.
0: A... First, yes. I've got two questions about this immediately. First of all, there are lots of
1: human-elephant
0: conflicts, are they? This is a problem. And secondly, tail hair?
1: Well, the study was done in Kenya. Right. So okay. we're talking African elephants. Okay. Not Australian elephants. Right. Obviously. And uh, yes, tail hair. The stable isotopes of carbon and nitrogen Mm -hmm. in the tail hair can reveal information about the elephant's living conditions and their diet. So trees and shrubs have lower ratios of carbon-13 to carbon-12 because they have different methods of photosynthesis. Okay. So you look at these ratios and you find out what they're eating. Right. And uh, seven elephants were immobilised with drug dart guns. Good. And foot-long hairs were pulled from their tail and this revealed that six of the seven elephants had spent most of their time in the arid lowlands eating trees and shrubs. Mm. Mm. The last elephant, an elephant named Lewis, ate trees <laughs> and shrubs during rainy times but raided farmers' cornfields at night.
0: Ah.
1: And about this human-elephant conflict, you'll be very sorry to know that after the study was completed, Lewis was found shot, Researchers would suspect... Aww that it was one of the farmers right. who so, owned the cornfields. So
0: what you're basically saying is if you go and tweak a hair out of an elephant's tail and have a look at the the elements that are in the elephant's tail hair, you can tell where it's been eating and maybe go oh hang on this one's obviously been into someone's farm we'd mm. better perhaps push it in the opposite direction before it gets shot. That's well, the idea here.
1: <laughs> pushing it in the opposite direction, and perhaps
0: well, metaphorically speaking, finding
1: yeah. finding areas where these elephants are going to be happy right. in Kenya. Right. Okay.
0: Nice story. Nice yes. story. Well, I'm going from uh, where were we? Kenya. Yes. Now to the apple Isle of Tasmania. Now, do you remember the the movie um, uh, Young Einstein? Oh was yes. that the one with uh, yeah. with um, Yahoo Serious playing Albert Einstein a Tasmanian? And that was pretty funny because Tasmania's always been the butt of jokes for being a bit stupid down there and in Tasmania and perhaps. a bit inbred. Which is completely wrong and completely untrue, and apologies to anyone in Tasmania listening to the show. In fact, you'll be happy to know that CSIRO is teaming up with uh, the Australian Government Intelligent Island program to bring a new ICT centre. So that's uh, um, uh, ICT. Quick, what does it stand for? Come on, this makes good radio, doesn't it? IT This is is community
1: radio at its best. Information
0: Technology. Information information and Communications Technology. ICT stands for Information and Communications Technology. There's a new ICT centre being opened up in Tasmania. Tasmania's been turned into the intelligent island. There's not much more to the story than that, other than, come on, Tasmania, you can come back and save the rest of Australia from stupidity in this modern age by being our intelligent island.
1: And knowing what ICT stands for. And
0: knowing what ICT stands from for. From
1: Tasmania, we're going into orbit, Cool, it would appear. Yes. Recently, there's been a ban on alcohol in the International Space Station, but this ban has been lifted. Apparently, it started when two cosmonauts were allowed to have chocolates mm. in their cargo come yep. up to them yep. that had liqueurs in them.
0: Oh, you know you know where that goes. It's a slippery slope.
1: It is. Right. Well, basically. So now, um, they've lifted the ban so that moderate alcohol consumption is allowed. And the Russian cosmonauts, in fact, were allowed to drink on Mir space station, mm. if you can remember way back when Mir was still I can, orbiting. I can, I can. Uh, you'd be having to know that their preferred alcoholic beverage is cognac.
0: There you go. Not, not vodka then. Because, I mean, is it just me or I would have assumed that there was no alcohol on the space station. I mean, that's a bit rough. People are up there for very long periods of time. Yes. But I would have just naturally assumed that space is not somewhere you want to wake up with a rotten hangover. You know, <laughs> you don't want drunk people in charge of one of these things, I would have thought.
1: Well, the Russians are uh, the Russian uh, the Russians medical support uh, team yep. have actually advised that they have alcohol up on the International Space Station because they are up there for six months, as you said, mm-hmm. and when they go on these spacewalks, it's apparently extremely strenuous, and in a matter of hours, they lose several kilos. Blimey. So when they come back on board, they want a way of relaxing quickly.
0: Right, right. And so what better way to do it? Indeed, indeed. So that's a nice way to to finish off this summer edition of this particular science show as we're kicking back here, metaphorically speaking, in the studio on our beanbags with a slab of beer, thinking of those cosmonauts floating around above us in the space station kicking back with their cognac. Here's cheers to you fellas up there. Enjoy yourselves. And that's all the time we've got for in this edition of this particular community radio science show that doesn't have a name right now. We're in summer edition, so there's just been myself, Chris Stewart, and my colleague, Jackie Hayes, here in the studio. See you later. Um, We're going to be back again next week, and we're in the hunt for a name. So if you have an idea for a name, then uh, then you can get in touch with us. Now, I don't know if our old email address still works, but it's definitely worth a try. So if I say this really really quietly, maybe no one's going to notice. You can email us at discovery at 2SER.com That's discovery at 2SER.com. Otherwise, you can catch us on our podcast if you go to uh, iTunes and put in something along the lines of Undiscovery or Undiscovered. That's currently what we're, we're using as a working title at the moment. We record the program every week in the uh, plush velvet studios of 2SER here in Sydney in UTS Tower, and we're broadcast around the country thanks to the Community Broadcast Network. We'll be back again same time next week for more science and goodness, so stay tuned. But for now, bye-bye.